0: So let's say you're in or running a healthcare business, whether you're a provider of services or creating the technology for healthcare, or you're supporting the vendors and providers that are doing the doing. You know that at some point you're going to have to work out your relationship with artificial intelligence, with AI. Is it something you need to worry about? Is it going to take your job? Will it revolutionize what you do? And what does it even mean? Today, we're going to explore the world of artificial intelligence and beyond in healthcare with my guest today from the company Max Kelson. In this episode, we're going to explore SAMD, software as a medical device, commercialising AI in healthcare, R&D and innovation, and loads, loads more. Okay, team Health Tech, let's make it happen. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today are Dr. Navid Tusi Sadie and Nicholas the Kelson Terry from Max Kelson. Max Kelson is an Australian machine learning and artificial intelligence solutions company delivering innovations that help businesses drive operational efficiencies and competitive advantage. Nick is the CEO and co-founder of Max Kelsen and has a broad range of expertise spanning across business, economics, sales, management, and law. Navid is the quality and technology translation leader at Max Kelsen, focusing on translating bleeding-edge AI and machine learning-based research projects to registered medical devices.
1: Hey guys, how are you going? Good, thanks, Pete. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, Pete. Yeah, it's
0: great to be here. Loving it. Thank you for making the time and I'm super pumped to chat about all the things that are uh, AI and ML and SAMD and R&D and other no doubt important relevant acronyms that we'll be discussing. So <laughs> really looking forward to getting into the detail of it. Be great for you to set the scene for us though firstly. I gave a really high level overview of both of you and the company, but it'd be great to hear from you. Firstly, introductions for yourselves. Who have we got Nick and Nabid?
1: Yeah, I'll kick us off. So I'm Nick, as you mentioned, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Max Kelson. We're a six-year-old AI company specialist, a machine learning and deep learning company that works across the economy. So not only do we have customers in healthcare and life sciences, we have customers in resources, oil and gas, um, financial services, insurance, public sector. So we've got a really broad experience over the last six years of building AI for a range of areas. But A lot of our business, um, you know, about 60% of our business is focused on the healthcare and life sciences sector. And obviously today we're going to talk a bit about SAMDs as you prefaced, but we build back of house solutions, you know, everything from revenue cycle management to surgical kit inspection to forecasting and and understanding, you know, resource requirements in hospital systems. So we've got a, a really broad set of experience that we've built up over the last six years of building AI for the healthcare market and right across that value chain from payers to providers, to to hospital systems and to patients. So yeah, we're really looking forward to having the chat today. Uh, so I'm Navit, I'm the quality and
2: technology translation leader at Max Kelson. Uh, my background is in mechanical engineering, I've done a PhD in biomedical engineering and medical device development, I've then done about a year of postdoc at the University of Queensland looking at translating some cutting edge medical devices. And I've then made the leap to Max Kilsen where I'm focusing on uh, getting the research developed uh, and the products uh, developed at Max Kelson in the hands of the patients and f- actually from the bench to bedside.
0: Very cool. Very now topics for healthcare and health tech. So this is going to be great. Look, software as a medical device. Firstly, for those that aren't aware, it'd be great if you could explain SAMD and, and I guess the current landscape here in Australia and abroad.
1: Yeah, of course. So um, software as a medical device is is probably something people have been hearing about if they've been hearing about it over the last couple of years. It's developed out of a you know a, a need to regulate. You know, traditionally we regulated medical devices because they were you know an implantable or a piece of technology, hardware technology that we're using in the treatment or diagnosis of patients. But increasingly, pure software has started to play that role. So it's either making a a, a diagnostic decision. Or it's guiding treatment in a way that is automated and and a human isn't involved in in that treatment guidance. And so the risk around that um, piece of software moves it into that of of how we traditionally think about a hardware-based medical device, um, an implantable or a, a linear accelerator or et cetera. So what we've had to do and what regulators have had to do around the world is understand well, how do we control risk in software in the same way that we do in medical devices and starting to deal with some of those challenges of, well, software is iterative, right? Software is on a release cycle that is much more frequent than what we would see for a medical device. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that medical device is suddenly defined by source code and not by schematics? So it's been a big change for the industry, but it is ultimately about making sure that the innovations in software do make it to the bedside, as Navid mentioned before, but regulated in the same way that we would any other traditional medical device.
0: I want to get to the nuts and bolts of those challenges in a little bit, but just to help us get our eyes on the prize or set the scene, you know, because so much of the talk around software as a medical device has been theoretical or research based. What does it actually look like when we commercialize something that's software as a medical device when we eventually get to that point?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really good question. I mean, there's a range of software as medical device that has been approved and is being used in general clinical practice. These might be systems that assist radiologists in doing their job by starting to pre-process some of their work and guiding them in the way that they assess the imagery. But to me, when I think about, you know, what are the great successes of, you know, recent innovation? I actually think about, and it's not so much software as a medical device, but it's before that. It's genomics as a medical device, and thinking about the BRCA diagnostic, right? And how we went from the human genome project and huge amounts of R and D in genomics to come up with a test that looks for one gene, which transforms the lives of many, many patients, right? Because once they know they're carrying that gene, they can take um, preventative action, and ultimately that saves lives. And I think that's the point at the end of the day software as a medical device will save lives. It will make diagnoses that humans can't make. It will help do treatment in a more precise way that humans aren't capable of. And ultimately that will lead to improving patient outcomes and improving the most important patient outcome, which is saving lives.
0: I guess the question needs to be asked, given that that's gonna be transformational and there's these obvious opportunities that exist with software as a medical device, do we need to regulate software like a medical device or is that even the right thing to do?
2: Yes, uh, that's a great question, Peter. We need to s- regulate software as a medical device when it's directly affecting diagnosis, treatment or monitoring of, of a certain disease. And that's because it's directly aff- affecting the life of a, of a patient. So we need to be thinking about in every time that we're developing a digital health product or, uh, or anything in, in that line, we need to be thinking about is this going to directly impact the life of a patient. And if the answer is yes, then that means that we need to be regulating that device and we need to be doing our due diligence to make sure that this is is an absolutely safe product to be used by a patient.
1: No, that makes sense. I think it's interesting, right, that the public has never been more engaged, I think, in a discussion about regulating, you know, the vaccine for COVID-19 and looking at, well, what does phase one, two, three clinical trials mean? And should the AstraZeneca vaccine be approved, etc. But I think what that's shown is that the public expects regulators to take their safety incredibly seriously, even you know, in days of a pandemic, right, where, you know, we've got a global pandemic, we can't travel. And yet people are saying, you know, are we happy with the way that this regulator has um, assessed the, the safety of that vaccine? Um, and that tells us that this is really important to patients, safety is really important. So from that point of view, we have to because we have to have the trust both of the patients and the clinicians and a solid regulatory pathway that proves the safety and efficacy of that system is the way to achieve both of those.
0: Yeah, such a good point. And that's, you know, such an interesting conversation that's been had in the public eye around regulation, not one that's been had with such, I guess, rigor for a very long time. So that does prove a good point. Back to that point, Nick, that you raised earlier around the challenges of regulating software as a medical device, given that AI, it's dynamic, it's evolving, you're continually releasing stuff. And a medical device is a is a static thing, you know, like it's, it's a piece of hardware that you can kind of put in a box and say, okay, it's not going to move anymore. This is what it is. And I can regulate it and say in its current state it's good but then how do you even approach that thing where you've got this ever-evolving kind of concept of and that's the whole point of artificial intelligence is ever learning but then needs to be regulated like a static hard
1: thing I'll let Navid jump into the nuts and bolts of this because this is what he's been working on with us since he started but it is a you know it's a really good really really good point that um, you know we say that software is more iterative than you know a hardware-based medical device an AI-based, med- AI as medical device is even more iterative. Um, you know, the, the the current sort of accepted standard is is what we call locking algorithms. So, we produce an algorithm, we train a model um, and we produce a, a final model and then we regulate that model um, as per that training run and we don't allow that model to change. Now, there are a number of, of bodies that consider this to be best practice but what we as um, ai practitioners will tell you is actually this is worse practice and that's because of um, a phenomenon um, called model drift uh, where essentially over time any trained model gets less and less accurate as the data around it changes and so the way that we deal with this in practice is to continually retrain and update the weights of those models um, so that they are staying fresh with the data that that is available um, and re- retain their accuracy, right? So you know the the day you re- you release a, a model that's trained is um, the most accurate it will ever be, and over time it will get more and more inaccurate. Um, for example, you know YouTube will retrain um, their their recommendation algorithms, you know, every hour, right? Because you know within an hour things change. Um, things change slower in in the um, uh, in, in uh, the medical device space but they do change and so it is interesting that um, for a long time the regulatory position was one that was actually at odds with best practice but that's starting to change and um, you know, you can fill us in on, on what's been happening in overseas.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so traditionally if you look at the, the regulatory framework physical med- medical devices interestingly is static uh, so any changes to the device then required a, a regulatory resubmission to the FDA for example. And obviously, as what Nick mentioned, this is not a possibility for software and especially AI-based software because it's ever-evolving and we need to be changing it all the time. So recently, and this is, I'm talking about probably two or three weeks ago, FDA have released an action plan looking at this specific topic and they've proposed looking at Um, encouraging uh, manufacturers to submit what we call as an algorithm change protocol in advance of the regulatory submission. So what that protocol basically says is that if um, we are going to change this uh, AI-based software as a medical device, this is the boundary of which we're gonna basically follow. And if we still uh, stay within that boundary, then the FDA would not require a regulatory submission. So this gives the manufacturers the comfort of this is my plan for the next couple of years, this is how I'm going to be changing my software and therefore as a result I can submit this to the FDA and then move, we move on with our life and we can actually get, have a software that is going to help the patient directly. And they've also suggested a, f- a few other things such as uh, getting the manufacturers to look at real-time performance of the software and at the same time get, a, get the FDA engaged uh, with that uh, reports to make sure that this device is in fact helping the patient. and FDA can have a very pragmatic and clear view of this and I hope that uh, more and more regulators can actually look at what the FDA is doing in in that space because it's definitely a very progressive view of looking at it and I think we here at Maxcelsen definitely believe that this is the way to go.
1: It's such a change, right, from, you know, looking at um, validation through, you know, clinical trials and then post-market surveillance um, and that being so after the fact, um, either before the fact or after the fact, to something where... A regulator is engaged almost on a real-time basis of um, observation of the performance of that Absolutely. system. You know, in the real world, um, it really, you know, if you think <laughs> about some of those trends that have been around healthcare for the last couple of years, real-world evidence and um, you know AI as a medical device, it's all starting to come together. But you know, the this is a big change for the way that we regulate these devices. It is, it is, and your take
0: on how it's all kind of progressing and next. Like, you know, there's been lots of conversations around. That whole process of regulating and, and you know everyone coming together and looking at what the future might look like in terms of software as a medical device, like what are your hopes and where's your heads at at the moment in terms of how that's all progressing?
2: I think it, it's great that we have an action plan. It's great that we know these are the things that we need to be addressing. I think what I've seen uh, missing and it's also mentioned in that action plan is that we need to be getting into nuts and bolts of this and understand how we're going to actually execute this and have, a, have what we call as a good machine learning practice that um, AI-based uh, med- software as a medical device companies can actually look at that and functionally execute that towards their own device and this is something that uh, we've been working on we're we we trying to come up with a good machine learning practice and hopefully in the next couple of months we can have that out there and uh, engage with the rest of the people in this space to to make sure that we have an open conversation and everyone can work toward the same goal, which is to build a very good AI-based software as a medical device that can help patients.
1: Yeah, I think the really interesting thing here is that what we're clearly seeing is the gap in regulation is holding back innovations making it to the bedside. Uh, In the US, you know, you see literally billions of dollars of venture capital money being spent on AI healthcare companies. And yet there are only 29 approved by the FDA, right? There's a huge gap there between the R&D and particularly the D of R&D, the development, and then actually getting that into market. And the gap in regulation is what I think attributes to a lot of that challenge in translation. Uh, And it just means that the latest technologies aren't actually helping patients. Um, So it is very good. I think we we are are very encouraged by the latest, um, you know, movements in this action plan by the FDA. But as Navid rightly points out, um, these are, you know, these will be assessed in highly functional ways, right? And so a high-level action plan is useful. But when you're talking about working with regulators, they will expect something um, a lot more prescriptive and low-level than that. And so there is this, The the direction's been set, but the map to get there still needs to be drawn. Um, and, And so there's still a lot of work to do before we have a really clear way to get AI products in front of patients safely.
0: That's a great description of, I guess, the lay of the land right now and and what we need to do. And I love having the conversation with the doers, those that are actually getting it done and like put the color between the lines and and we'll make it happen. And it's great to hear that you've got that kind of excitement to engage with others within the industry to make it something, you know, certainly scalable and meaningful too. So looking forward to that as it evolves. Last one on SAMD for a second, just put it in context for me. Say we do this well, we get through this process and we nail it and we nail the commercialization of AI in healthcare.
1: What does that look like?
0: What happens next?
1: Yeah, um, good question. I mean, what happens next is we see um, a lot more innovation hit the market. The rate of change, as you know, in delivery of health services is fairly glacial. I think we can all agree. Uh, And I think that that is at odds with the tens of thousands of people working around the world to innovate in all aspects of healthcare delivery, right? Um, and and what we're what we're not seeing is the bulk of that innovation actually translate. And and what does it mean? It means fewer missed diagnoses. It means a more preventative, more precise, more precision based healthcare system. It means knowing whether a patient is going to respond to a pharmaceutical before we prescribe it, instead of waiting to see if they respond. It means you know less radiotherapy being. Um, um, you know, being treated into the areas that it shouldn't be um, and it being more targeted to the areas it needs to be. It means, you know, it, 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 mean, you know, it means chronic diseases are managed digitally with you know, less impost on the healthcare system, but better patient outcomes. You know, the, the list of, um, of areas that people are tackling, it means increasing the drug discovery loop and the number of pharmaceuticals that we're discovering and bringing to market. Uh, you know, there's these, um, you know, when you, when you look around the, the amount of innovation, the, the number of projects that are being undertaken that should they get to market will have material impact on thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients' lives is, is truly mind-blowing. But unless we have a path to get more than 29 AIs, medical devices, into the FDA – um, a lot of that's going to stay in the lab, um, but if we do this well, what it looks like is a is a healthcare system that uh, is you know able to scale with the challenges that we have today with an aging population, with increased complexities of care, and a system that can scale beyond the people within it.
0: Thinking more broadly about innovation in in AI. For a moment and thinking we're in australia and max kelson obviously based in australia as well australian company how does australia fare when it comes to ai innovation compared to other parts of the world
1: i think that australia i'm going to do the classic politician thing and answer your question slightly differently to start off with which is to say <laughs> i think uh, <laughs> i think australia does very very well um at innovation in the med tech space right um you know, I think of um, Sean Pearson's Allume and, and how they sold. you know, that, that they're gonna roll out their, their rapid COVID test um, across the US, mm. right? Yeah. I think of Cochlear, of Gardasil, of, of even, you know, our, our friends and colleagues at Microba with, you know, the global leading gut microbiome platform, right? Um, Australia, traditionally, innovation wise in med tech um, and health tech punches above its weight, in my personal opinion. I think in AI, we probably can't say that. Um, I think whilst we have um, real pockets of um, incredible people doing incredible things, we are probably behind the curve um, in terms of adoption and capability. Uh, we've seen you know um, major investment in the sector in Canada, particularly in the US, in Israel, in China, um, and in the UK. And the investment in Australia has been nothing on the scale of those countries, all of which have seen AIs both a a, like a national priority right and in america you know that ties into national security and defense but canada it's been a very research-led and and obviously the montreal cluster but we sort of haven't had that level of focus from either the federal or, or state politicians and i'll give a shout out to queensland here the queensland state government has funded the the queensland ai hub which you know is the first of its kind in australia but you know, we, we really um, we really don't quite have the the sector that we that you know we see overseas, um, no doubt about it. But many notable mentions, you know, Maxwell Plus, our colleagues at Pop Gun and Replica Labs. You know, they, there are a, a lot of really great teams in Australia doing great things. So this isn't said to diminish their work. It's just said on the whole, I think Australia lags. Could do. In the AI space, and particularly when you look over the fence at the med tech, health tech space.
0: I saw something posted in the Talking Health Tech community. I think I might have even posted it actually, but it was a flow graph of looking at where all the talent within AI goes globally. And it was like a lot coming from in undergraduate studies. There was nothing much coming from Australia, but quite a lot of say immigration into Australia, where then, you know, in graduate school, studying in AI, there's quite like Australia represented okay. Definitely nothing compared to the US or Europe or Canada or China or anything. But then there was quite a lot that then left to other countries like in postgraduate work to say the US or to China or other parts you know maybe we hold on to a little bit of knowledge too and me you know I've got a very commercial high level understanding around AI but definitely nothing about the nuts and bolts and detail of it do you think we're doing a good enough job generally of holding on to good talent within the country or is there anything that can be done to kind of retain some of that talent or even attract more of it into Australia
1: we're definitely not (laughs) we are not doing well (laughs) enough without a shadow of a doubt much you know COVID's great for us because fewer people are leaving and even a couple are coming home that is not a long-term solution to the problem (laughs) Mm. Uh, look in all seriousness Australia produces excellent talent truly excellent talent and when you spend time in Silicon Valley or you spend time in Israel you realize that there are plenty of Australians around these top performing teams right they're not here they're there you know, your point's really interesting that after graduate school or after PhDs, we see a lot of talent flight and I would assert that occasionally that's because those sort of qualifications aren't necessarily valued by private sector here like they are in the US and in other areas. I think that's an interesting gap and one that we could do a lot better on. But I also think that we need to see, you know, more deep tech investment. And those deep tech investments will require those sort of people to be around to help. And therefore, they will want to stay around it. I think that, you know, I'm going to be a total arrogant Aussie here and say this is the best country on earth to live and I imagine people only leave because they have to leave to do the thing that they want to do or to earn the money that they're worth, right? Why would anyone want to leave Queensland? Honestly, um, what a place. <laughs> I'm a Sydney-sider, so, so you know,
0: but you know, maybe they might want to yeah, come yeah, from yeah, Brisbane yeah. to Sydney, but, you know, like...
1: <laughs> no, you're wrong. But it is a... And, and I, you know, I speak to people, um, you know, in, in the valley or, or, you know, in the northeast corner about... Um, you know, why they went to the US and, and you know, the, the feedback often is, well, because I had to. Um, I didn't want to leave Australia and, and one day I want to come home um, because I would rather, you know, be living in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane um, or even Perth. Those people are weird, but they, um, <laughs> but they, they, um, uh, they, you know, this is a great country to live and work, right? That's the point. Um, and I don't think we're losing talent because it isn't a great country to live and work. We're losing talent because the opportunities aren't there and we don't value some of those qualifications like what we should. I think I
2: can certainly attest to to Nick's point because in in the batch that I've done my PhD with, we've had probably around 20 other colleagues in, in the same lab and I can say out of the 20, we have only two left still staying in, in Australia and working. And if you speak to them, they're all big surfing uh, fans. They always, you know, every morning they go to the beach and have a nice surf and then come to work. And they love the lifestyle, but because they, here wasn't necessarily the scene for them to, to work and because they couldn't find that bigger companies and, and places that they could actually be educated in and work with. And they, they've had to make a decision to, to move uh, back to, to their countries. Yeah, that's oh, interesting, isn't it?
0: And I guess building on that and then thinking around taking what we're really good at in terms of innovation and research in Australia when it comes to healthcare and then commercializing it. How do you go about that? And have we got a good track? I mean, we've talked a little bit about it already, but you know, our track record in Australia of taking innovations to, I guess, like you say, bedside or commercializing so some of these innovations.
1: So one thing that at Max Kelson, you know, as a business, we work with clients to help them build SAMDs or any software in the healthcare space. And what we see ourselves as is not just the developer of that software or that SAMD, but also obviously the regulatory consultants and view and then also commercialization partners. So not just building something, but helping our customers guide it through the regulatory process and then helping them get it to market. And I will say that commercialization, particularly in our space, in the SAMD space, is quite difficult in Australia. And what you'll find mostly is that Australian companies in this space will commercialize first in the US. Uh, And that's because the US market is much more conducive to commercialization than the Australian market is. Um, And that's, you know, due to the sort of public nature of our system and, and the way that Um, the MBS and PBS works and and the way that the restrictions placed on private health insurers as to what they can cover and the fact that that needs to be on the MBS uh, in many cases. So you do have this very sort of slow process to having a viable market in Australia for a new product, whereas in the US that's much faster. Um, And so, you know, by and large, uh, Australians, I find, don't know about all the great med tech or health tech companies that are right next door to them because they go directly to the US to commercialize, and so no one in Australia ever sees them.
2: Yeah, and if I want to add a, a sort of a regulatory anecdote to that as well, if you look at the, the regulatory environment, if you, if you have a software as a medical device product and you're choosing where you're going to go first, and let's say you want to go to Australia and also to the US then you'll see that within that path, it's much better for you to go to the FDA first, get your product approved, and then you can then use that approval to come to Australia and to the TGA and say, I have this approval, uh, Can you?" then the process would be much more streamlined. And if you look at it from the other direction, if I first go to the TGA and then go to FDA, then I have to start the process all over again because uh, FDA doesn't necessarily uh, approve what has been then approved in in TGA first to go to the FDA. So I think we've seen, and I think I've looked at this, because Nick had the same question around what is the percentage of of this and how does this happen? I could see that 93% of products first go to FDA, Australian-built products first go to FDA and then come to TGA. And that's definitely something that I think should be changed if you wanted to see more and more products commercialised here uh, in the market.
0: Makes so much sense, doesn't it? It's just a logical flow that normally it would, you know, FDA flows down to TGA, but that's not very helpful for retaining and growing stuff out of Australia and then pushing it out. So that's going to be a challenge to overcome, that's for sure. I'm conscious that we have, you know, within the community of talking health tech and just broadly, you know, all the listeners as well, we have early stage founders of organizations that are creating solutions for healthcare providers we also have you know more established organizations that are creating technology have done for many years but now looking at well you know we need to be utilizing data better and perhaps undertake some R&D Since you guys are very much the doers around this space, have you got any advice generally for someone earlier that's looking to undertake, say, research and development work for their potential solution? How do you go about building that capability to even undertake that kind of work?
1: In a second, I'm going to let Navid talk about what an early-stage founder should do um, (laughs) because we certainly made some mistakes on our journey or if we had our time again, we'd do some things differently and he's um, been coming up against that over the last couple of months. I think if you're a more established organization, though, that is looking to leverage your data to create, you know, competitive advantage or a new asset um, that you can bring to market. Look, you, you just you want to make sure that you're working with a partner that's done it before um, and that can give you that full service offering. You know, it really does take it's a completely different proposition to I want to build some software, um, you know, I want to build an app to do X to I want to build um, a, medic, a software as a medical device to do X, it's a hugely different proposition and you really need to be working with people that have done it before and because of the all-encompassing nature of quality management systems and the things that you need to do to be able to bring that product to market, working with a, a provider um, makes a lot of sense because getting those things internally, um, particularly with an organization at scale and with legacy is very difficult.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the key thing there is that we need to make sure that compliance isn't an afterthought. We need to make sure that compliance, product development and commercialization are all happening at the same time. The planning is happening at the same time, because then you can say, okay, I'm going to build this software as a medical device product. There are certain functions of this product that can be first used by the patient without the, the regulatory rigor. And then I can sort of build that up to a software as a medical device product while I'm building my quality management system, while I'm b- building the infrastructure required, that, that requires a lot of funding. And I think we've, we've seen with Nick that we, we're spending a lot of money around uh, building this quality management system. It's, it's a difference of way of working for, for everyone who is in the company. So it takes a lot of work and effort to, to get to a certain stage so that we can then start building that software as a medical device. And it's very important that if, if that idea pops into your head, you should need to be thinking, three, four years down the road, because that's definitely how long it takes to develop that product, properly verified and validated and get it through the clinical trials, even if you have that quality management system already in place. Yeah. So uh, if you don't have that, then you're looking at another one and a half to two years of setback, because then you need to be building that within your business before you can then move on to actual product development. So there, there is a lot there. And I think we are also learning uh, through our way but certainly working with uh, with, uh, partners that have gone through that way and have learned from their mistakes and and can now do it even much better is definitely the way to go.
1: Yeah, I think if I was, you know, founding a med tech company tomorrow, first thing I'd do is work out what classification I think my device is gonna be at and then build the structure to support that classification into the business from day dot because retrospectively doing it is much more difficult than building it in from from day one. So that's probably the first point. And the second point, I think that when I talk to young founders in this space, understanding the revenue cycle and actually who your buyer is and understanding that patients are actually relatively price sensitive when it comes to health products, like patients actually spend very little money on and people, despite it being the most important thing, are surprisingly unwilling to spend out-of-pocket money on health products. Clinicians are unwilling to ask patients to put their hand in their pocket. Clinicians aren't the buyer, but they're an important stakeholder. Um, And then you've got, you know, the public system. So it's a, the revenue cycle in healthcare is, as you very well know, Pete, infinitely complex and understanding where your buyer is and how you create value for them and what that path to commercialization is, is also very important to know from day dot because I have seen many startups have to pivot quite hard because they made assumptions in the early days that just simply didn't bear fruit. And if they had taken a broader look at the revenue cycle and the realities of commercialization in the healthcare market, they wouldn't have made those decisions in the first place.
0: Such valuable information that I'm sure there's going to be a few people going back and listening to that a few times because there's some insights that can save a lot of people years in some of the things they might be building or at least give new ideas and perspective because sometimes people don't even think about, they approach a challenge or they go, look, I've got a lot of data within an organization or a big problem to solve and I get that, you know, and they may not have a full comprehension of the capability of utilizing artificial intelligence, software as a medical device to be able to then solve for some of these problems. So many wouldn't even know that there's organizations such as yourselves that exist to be able to speak with and flesh out some of these problems and not just purely the development side of things but all of the ancillary stuff that's involved around it that's so important like the regulatory side of things so hopefully that creates some ideas for at least some more conversations that can be had off the back of this one as well lastly then just to think about you guys max kelson as the company what's on the horizon for you what can we look forward to seeing from max kelson in 2021 and beyond
1: Well, the main thing in 2021 for the purpose of this podcast is Navid's going to finish his uh, QMS (laughs) and we are going to hopefully go through an MD SAP audit, which will give us the MD SAP is um, sort of a single application for the FDA and the TGA, along with a number of other jurisdictions, which will allow us to work with our customers to build and bring to market those software as medical devices, which we're doing at the moment, but in parallel with getting those regulatory approvals. So it's, it's a huge, really exciting piece for us. Internally, we're doing a lot of work around platforms and patterns and standards look like to increase the speed of bringing AI as medical device products to market, Um, and that's a big focus for us. Um, You know, a lot of what's been built to date generally gets hand rolled over and over and over again. And there's a whole lot of then validation, etc. that needs to go on the whole stack. Whereas realistically, there's a lot of that stack, which is universal between different applications. So how can we start from a different starting point that's further down the road from where we start from today um, to bring that investment cycle down on new products? Um, And and you will see us bring products to market with a number of our customers, really um, exciting, innovative pieces of technology, which are going to improve patients' lives from eye disease conditions to skin cancer to a range of other areas. So look, we're really excited. And probably the only other thing to say is we have our own internal research team that we'll be looking to bring a couple of products to market in the genomics and AI space um, over the next, or at least starting to introduce those to market over the next 12 months. So we've got a really exciting and obviously ambitious roadmap in front of us. Um, we're always looking for great companies to partner with and work with is the other thing to obviously to note, we're here to build products that improve the lives of patients. If you are sitting on a lot of data and think that, you know, you've got a, a, an angle at that, then please reach out. We're all happy to work with you to work out whether there is something there and, and what the process would look like. But yeah, that's, that's 21 for us, Pete. <laughs> Never had anything to add. <laughs> I think I'm going to emphasize on a point that we've had multiple discussions with Nick about
2: Is that we're going to be one of the only, if not very few uh, companies in the space that is a consultancy company, software as a medical device that has a quality management system in place and certified and compliant. So this, this is quite a rare uh, combination of a skill set to have in, in one place. And I'm absolutely super excited to be a part of this and looking forward to what 2021 has to bring.
0: Such a specific thing to have, but such an important thing at the same time. So, And there'll be those that are in the know that know that that's really important. So I'm sure there'll be organizations planning to have a chat with someone from Max Kelsen soon. I'll put all the contact details and things that people can check out for what you guys are doing in the show notes of this episode on our website, TalkingHealthTech.com. There's full articles and everything that you can read as well as listen to this episode. So look guys, I really appreciate your time. Good luck with everything that's happening in 2021. And we'll speak to you later on.
1: Thank you.